0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Lead Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And I gotta say that I'm sitting in the middle of Cindy Fountain's living room, and there are a million stories that are in this room. That the walls, the ceiling, the floor, the the animals the, the, they're all uh, they're all stories. They're every <laughs> single one of them. So this is uh, kind of a storyteller's paradise, I think. Uh, I think that's why uh, Chuck uh, brought us here and, and gave me the opportunity to, to meet uh, this uh, very fascinating, very interesting lady, Cindy Fountain. So, Chuck, what are we going to talk about today?
1: Last week we talked about vulture, this week we're talking about muskrat. Ooh. Okay. I love muskrat. You ready? You bet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Down below the meadows in the village of Hilburn, south of the Ford Erie track spur, Ramapo Kevin Powell walked with me to look for a Ford debris. There was always debris down there over the years. This was the place where the waste fires behind the Ford plant had darkened the sky, spreading dioxin and heavy metals back to the meadows' homes and across the Ramapo River into the West Ward section of the village of Suffren. Upriver of the meadows, I trapped with my dad for muskrats. But we never came south along the Ramapo, as he believed others were already trapping down here. Now, walking through over the oversized stands of Phragmites, an invasive wetland plant where once native cattails stood, Kevin reminisced about trapping muskrats. We shared river trapping stories, and we discovered that we worked the river at the same time. It was Kevin down the river that was trapping when we were trapping upriver. I asked him if the muskrat held any particular significance for the Ramapo. He wasn't sure at first, other than as an indicator of a robust ecology. Muskrats subsist on vegetation, small fish, and crawdaddies. Muskrat presence indicates a healthy presence for all the prey. As we tramped along the riverbank, our feet sinking in fresh summer mud, we talked about muskrat trapping a good bit and about their excellent swimming ability. Like their cousin, the beaver, muskrats, although awkward on land, are excellent swimmers. Both rodents have hairless tails that support their underwater activity. Kevin mentioned that animals that exist in different states, above and below water, on ground and in the air, are significant to Indians. I was reminded of Calvin Martin's observation of being at the edge of the water, at the skin of the world. So I told Kevin of Martin's work with the Yupik Eskimo storytellers who understood that animal spirits could pass through a membrane, as it were, and shapeshift into other beings, that some humans could also do this. Kevin laughed, and he said it never happened to him. But he did add that muskrat trapping as a boy he believed linked him to a kind of living past, returning upland beneath an overhead power line grid We speculated as to the lack of Ford artifacts in this area. One possibility was that the scraps were buried, although not likely as the periodic flooding would have unearthed them. Another possibility was with the presence of the power line grid towers there, the placement could have initiated a remedial action, a cleanup. I then suggested that perhaps when Ford closed the plant, they removed the burnt trash. Kevin smiled and said, ''On their own?'' Not likely. We climbed back up to the Ford Erie Spur line and then turned around to take in the low-lying marsh one more time. And it was only then that these two one-time boyhood muskrat trappers realized that along with no immediate sign of Ford debris in the meadow, there was also no sign of muskrats. Out there beneath the waving golden stalks of Phragmites, we didn't notice a single muskrat slide. Phragmites, as it turns out, proliferates in soils that are laden with industrial metals, such as chromium, mercury, and, of course, lead. Perhaps the absence of muskrat and the presence of Phragmites was a sign. Clearly, the stories told by the Ramapos have been acculturated by non-Native influence. Along with Eurocentric traditions, there is also an Afro-American theme to be found in all the local lore. So how is a listener to discern the native element? A keen eye and ear can pick up what is Ramapo-Lenape when in the presence of a traditional teller. Often there is less formality and less theatrics, with the exception of perhaps ceremonial occasions. They may encourage a little circle around a small fire, The teller will burn some traditional offerings such as sage or cedar or even beaver chew, which is the gathered chips from a freshly gnawed tree site. Delivery, by tradition, defies Western grammar. Tenses jump all over the place. They dissolve into a past, leaping into a present, which often the events are yet to even happen, but they make it into the teller's narrative. As Chief Ronald Redbone once said, stories are kept alive through the telling. By telling of what happened a hundred years ago, it comes into being and it happens all over again. For the same token, Ramapo Mosel Van Dunkstein has said, when you talk about tomorrow, it becomes today. This reordering of a linear time continues as part of the traditional belief and is core to the idea of speaking into being. Speaking into being. It is fundamental to the native way and it is the key hurdle to native acculturation into white society. In terms of teasing out the influence of industrial culture and the impact of forward contamination, one first looks to the traditional nature of the stories and examines how the story has come to its late 20th century version. All stories absorb their environmental surroundings and more or less report on them. Walking with a trapper, Who is a person of the land, accustomed to local knowledge, it is inevitable to read the lack of muskrat sign. And start to think of muskrat, of being more than the past, than the present. The elder in this case plays an important role in bringing muskrat back into the present with the use of the story. The Phragmites, an invasive plant that may indicate industrial influence in the soil, brings forth another piece of the change in the story. While a conservation biologist may indicate Phragmites is here purely as an opportunist invasive, the Ramapo may ask, why has the Phragmites come to this place? Phragmites, in the latter case, arrives with a story and builds upon an existing story. In the narrative of place, opportunity is not without intention. All beings bring sign, and all beings tell stories.
0: Very interesting. So now I had to look at muskrats in a very different
1: Oh, yes, way. you do. <laughs> yeah. What, uh,
0: what are your thoughts about that, Cindy? What, uh, what are some of the things that come to your mind when you hear that?
2: Well, I know Kevin well. He's a cousin, second cousin of mine. And I was raised with his great-great-grandfather, uh, Ed Peterson, that was a medicine man for the tribe. That's where I learned all medicine, all traditional ways, shape-shifting, which I have done. I've done it as a child, and I've done it as an adult. If any of them ever wanted to ever have a conversation with me, not necessarily friendly cousins or anything, excuse me, you're on his page.
0: We have an obstreperous dog here that... uh, (laughs) has decided that, hey, wait a minute, you haven't talked to me in the last 30 minutes, and we need to chat a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Newberg, this is all for you. Yes, (laughs) and
2: so sure enough with that, you know, if they haven't already experienced, it is your right. Because, you know, I'm a second cousin to him. These are some talents and gifts that you you can use. So, yes, shapeshifting is something that I know very much about. My kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, I have seen use it. I'm not one, I'm a great-grandmother. I don't need to see every baby every time. Mm -hmm. lest there's a troublesome pregnancy, I go. Because we all know minority people, Native and uh, African-American, can very easily die giving birth or a lot of the other things that other people would take for granted. Mm -hmm. So I stand as the maternal person to go in the room. But these boys were fine. Their mother was fine. Everything was good. But then when we went to their first birthday, they did not know us. I'm not a great grandparent that runs up and you got to hold. I got to hold you. I've got to kiss you. And I've got to do all this. All I got to do is look at you. When I do, uh, Sage in Cairo. Jeff and I were sitting on a couch together. They looked over at us. Cairo got off of his mother's lap. He stood and looked. He clearly shapeshifted yeah. because he was a little boy. I had never shared this with him, but my grandfather had apparently given him the knowledge because he did a traditional sh- response with his hand. He never turned around and looked back at his brother or his mom. He did the sign, and after he did the sign, he turned and did one twist. The other little boy slid off the mother's lap, and they walked up to me and Jeff like we had been there the moment they were born. They only knew us. Mm. And that's, that's a sign of shape-shifting.
0: So they connected with you. Yeah,
2: yeah. the spirit, yeah. an older spirit, which was my grandfather, who is very, very uh, profound still to this day, because he's come to a lot of the other kids and taught them all kinds of things. One of them was having a seizure one day. We, as natives, don't run. If you see something going on bad, you're going to go and try to stop that, but... I watched to see if she was having a seizure because there's a way to settle that. She wasn't. The symptoms weren't a seizure. It was something else. Then she put her hand out like this. And the bee, the first animal I learned to talk to, sat on her finger. She was three years old. She brought it up. She talked to him. She took him back, and she told him to go. He went, flew all around, and he did it. Multiple times. So there was no reason for me to try to go, leave that be yeah. alone. just Because their conversation was their conversation. Mm-hmm. And the gift that had taught that exact same thing to me. Yeah. Where am I going to go st- step in and say, oh, I, I know what to do.
1: You know, this is so interesting. Speaking of uh, getting back to muskrat trapping, but it connects to what you're saying. When you trap an animal, a leg hole trap with the uh, muskrats, it's set up so the trap will wait down into the water, and when you come the next morning, the animal is drowned. I'm checking the traps. Walt showed me how to do, and I'm with Walt. I'm still a boy. And there's a muskrat sit- sitting on the log with the trap attached to his leg, so he didn't go into the water. So I said, well, what do we do now? And he said, well, you've got to knock him down into the water. And I looked at him, and he was caught not uh, high on the leg but low, just by one, one toe, you could say. And I said, well, his foot isn't damaged. And he said, yep. And I said, well, maybe this one isn't supposed to be trapped. <laughs> and, and Walt looked at me and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, let's let this one go. So accommodating what I had come up with, he said, take off your coat, wrap it over the muskrat. And I took off my coat and he didn't run away. I wrapped it no. over the muskrat. Walt reaches down, he squeezes the trap, opens it up. And the little one little toe was mangled, but he was all right. And he said, all right, let him go. And he's still on the log, and I take the coat off, and he just sits there and stares at us. And then Walt said, "Uh, well, I think he's thanking you. And we stood there for probably two or three minutes, but that's a long time, especially for a wild animal that had been injured and up all night waiting for what's going to happen next. Sure. And so we just stood there, And then Walt talked a little bit, and he figured, well, this isn't going to change. So he takes out his pipe, and he lights his pipe, because we might as well be here for a while. Yeah, yeah. And then we sit down, and the muskrat just sat there staring at us, looked away a couple times, and looked back, and then finally went on. (sighs) That was the first time in capturing wild animals that I got this sense that there is a a joint sensibility, if you will allow for it, if you're not arrogant, if you will allow Mm -hmm. for it. Boy, did it make it hard for me to kill animals? I mean, I did.
2: Yeah, yeah, but I, no. I, I we got were more eat selective.
1: People. I got more careful. Yeah, we were I, and eat if people. an animal wasn't really damaged, I let him go. And it's sort of an interesting thing you start to learn because you're starting to build trust in the animal and it's starting to reciprocate. That well, was a, a whole new thing for me at that time. That's one of the things that I'm
0: kind of curious about. You know, I hear Cindy speak of the animals and they have purpose and they're here to teach us that that's that's the purpose of all mm-hmm. living things to mm-hmm. teach and that makes so much sense and then you you know the story that you just told so where is the line when is it when is it appropriate to take the life of an animal when well when let is me it?
1: answer first Cindy because I'll be quick go ahead we evolved as a species That went from scavenger, following predators and eating what they left behind, sort of doing what vulture does, to eventually becoming a little bit more savvy, watching how predators capture prey. And we evolved to eat more complex proteins, and that helped evolve our whole neocortex Mm -hmm. development, the whole brain development, because the proteins got more So we kind of followed, in terms of our real primitive state, a way in which it became necessary to eat other living things. But if you look deep into the culture of how this happened, we also find that at the same time, our primitive ancestors, our true elders, acknowledged without these other things, we wouldn't have lived. So it's more than flesh they give us. It's the lessons. It's the medicine. And as we discovered that, some of us became far more selective at what we were doing and started doing something, uh, I would say, a little metaphysical we started acknowledging and thanking the animal if it dies for us and then when you have yes. him, it's essentially saying grace you say grace you're thanking God you're thanking God that mm-hmm. you, you have sustenance but you're also thanking the sustenance for sacrificing itself so your children can live that sort of becomes part of that whole tradition of respecting existence some of it gets sacrificed not all of it you're very careful about that and you remain in tune. To all our relations. does Is that pretty much how it works yes, for you? Yes,
2: it really is. And, and it brings me to mind going down the thruway one day and seeing a baby cub in the middle of the road, mm-hmm. the thruway. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we had Mal's, Mally in the wheelchair and everything. We were going to Hilburn for something. And I said, yeah, pull off, pull off. i got to get this cub out the middle of the road because I could see the Rampo River mm-hmm. uh, was right there. And the mother... With another cub was there. And so I'm up and I can see her. He's gotten knocked apart pretty good. He's not alive. He's on the other side. I pulled over. I jumped out the car. Jeffrey pulled it to the side. I pulled that one all the way over nearer to her, not right up to her. Right. I started skinning her. The mother was watching me. The whole time. The entire time. I've had tons of experiences with Bear. But she watched you skin. She her watched offspring. me skin. Now, when I'm talking about the shape shifting and talking to something, I do not need to talk like Cindy is talking now. There is a conversation that I can have with anything. Glad you saw the stories in the house. This is how everything got here. But the fact of it was, when that happens, I can just look at them. It looks like a funnel is going from me to them. I can't put it in any kind of other way. They're hearing me and everything that they're sensing, I'm hearing back. That's why I work really well with animals, and I can train them really well.
1: Does that answer the question a little bit, Joe? I know when you ask a question, we take you on a long journey. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it, it,
0: uh, but it's an, always an interesting journey, but but uh, yeah, that does answer it. You're talking about there's, the line is, is survival, and maybe part of the animal's purpose is to ensure your survival, to enable you not to perish, to enable you to, to have what you need, the skins that you need, things like that, for warmth and for, you know...
2: For medicine. For, and medicine. for medicine. For medicine, again, medicine. I don't need a doctor to sew me up. I know how to close it up. Mm-hmm. I know that you are a deeper part of this than you even know because you're listening and you're hearing, and I'm sure you have been the taper of a lot of the other stories, so you've heard things from people. When you walk in the yard, sometimes you're going to talk to the trees yeah. because my trees all hang out and down mm-hmm. so that you can just take them and shake them. You shook my hand. Yeah. Shake the tree's hand. Ted knows about the talking trees that I called him when they took all this down. It's a battle.
1: Yeah. It's a battle. We don't win the war, but we might win a few of the battles. Joe, how are we doing on time?
0: I think we're good for this one. Good. Let's wrap this up. Another interesting uh, chapter. How, how many more do we have?
1: Uh, there's a few, but I'm going to move ahead to the one that Cindy plays a big role in. Oh, God. great! Yeah, great, I great, think great. I think that's uh, something of a gift. <laughs> it certainly S- was the main. I'm
2: scared because I'm I'm waiting for one of these two because I got something to say about one of these two. All right. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, make sure you tune in next week, folks, because we're going to find out about this Cindy Fountain next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for joining us. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live Sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange Book Bucks? when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for store credit. You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the montgomerybookexchange.com or call them. At 845 764 1787. That's 845 764 1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden. Where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also, at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award winning research based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845 522. 9652 themontgomerybookexchange.com your hometown used bookstore you're gonna love this place